What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. And I am in Nassau, the Bahamas today, I think. Uh, you so are? I'm really not here. It's uh, it's magic, actually. We pre-recorded this, and I have a cold, so wow. I apologize to everybody for how I sound. Uh, but yeah, we pre-recorded this because we're on our Horse Lovers Cruise, and Wendy was kind enough to just do it a week ahead. So thank you for that. Appreciate <laughs> it. What's coming up on today's show? On today's show, Kathleen Hake tells the story of Goliath, the hero of the Great Baltimore Fire of 1904. Glenn does an interview on carriage pulled by a pair of Clydesdales with Heather and David Schneider. And Kitty Cadwell gives us tips about how to beat those winter blues in your training. Plus, we preview Live Oak International. And then on the TCVM segment, we're going to review the basics of TCVM. What is yin and yang anyways? Do you want to find out? Listen in. Well, Wendy, I'm excited for you to hear last weekend we're down in Wellington and we were recording a Finding Florida episode for that podcast I do. And we were doing the Horses of Wellington. And I knew our friend Heather was down that way. So we went up and saw her. And this might be the first interview we've done in a while that I did while we were driving. Oh, good. So That's gonna fun. Hear, you're going to hear the clippity-clop of very large feet. Uh, her couple of Clydesdales were pulling it. She, of course, runs a commercial business down there, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, too. I get to talk to David, uh, her better half, who was on the carriage with us, and also joining us was Happy the Dalmatian. So uh, d Happy didn't have much to say. I tried to interview Happy, but not much happened. So. <laughs> but that, I'm so excited for you to hear that because you haven't heard that interview yet. Well, they're big Clydesdales. It was so much fun to be around the draft horses again and go for a drive. And she was so kind yeah. and considerate. So thank you, Heather and David, for putting up with And she has some great hours. adventures in her commercial carriage business. Yes. And she told some of those stories, so you'll get to hear some of those today as well. But first, we have to find out your product feature of the month. You know, whether you have mud yet or mud is coming, mud causes a lot of scratches or pastern dermatitis in horses, and it can be super painful, and it's a pain to deal with. And everybody has all kinds of different recipes and remedies. And we have a salve. It's called Golden Yellow Salve. And it's actually in an olive oil and beeswax base. So it softens the skin. And it also uh, can produce um, a water barrier for the skin, much like desitin does. Um, but then it has a blend of herbs that help with uh, to to decrease bacteria and fungus on the skin. So it's a great all-in-one treatment and you can just um, clean the foot and make sure it's dry, clean their pasterns and then add a little golden yellow and you can turn them back out in the disgusting mud and hopefully you'll have less pastern dermatitis. And where can they find it again? You can find it at drwendying.com. And search for... 
Golden and search yellow. for golden yellow salve. It is a big problem. We have it. Uh, Scooter has scratches most of the time down here in Florida. This time of year, yeah, last because it's not so damp. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. In Florida, we do have uh, scratches almost year round in many places. Uh, if it's very sandy, you might not have that problem. But it's just like you said, it's so damp, and that's what happens. They, their skin starts to crack. And they get a, a secondary bacterial infection. So one of the best things to do is to clip their pasterns and make sure to try to keep them as clean and dry as possible. Which I know that's not easy when we're living in constant moisture. But. Very good. Let's head off to one of our favorite segments every month, and that's Kathleen with the Carriage Association of America. <laughs> It's time for Carriages 101 with Kathleen Hake. What are you talking about this week, Kathleen? Well, we're going to be talking a little bit about fire, uh, horse-drawn fire apparatuses. We had the chance uh, this past weekend to visit the Fire Museum of Maryland, and we had the best time there. We, We laughed quite a bit. And along the way, we learned about this horse called Goliath. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the vehicle that he pulled and his role in the Great Baltimore Fire. Oh, my gosh. This sounds exciting. Glenn loves fire trucks. I do. They're one of my favorite commercial vehicles, fire trucks. So um, we've all heard about the Great San Francisco Fire. Tell us a little bit about the Great Baltimore Fire. So the Great Baltimore Fire um, really decimated a section of Baltimore. And it happened when it happened, Goliath was in his, his stable, as the story goes. And just to give you a little background on him, he entered the fire service in July 13th of 1899 at age six. And he retired after 19 years of service. Wow. He was on a steamer, but he was the offside horse. So I learned this week that a lot of times they, uh, the fire trucks, we're going to call them fire trucks for lack of a better word, um, <laughs> were pulled by either two or three horses. In In this side of the country, you don't typically see them as a four. And it's because they're easier to harness that way. So with the pair, of course, the horses learn that the fire bell rings and they spring into position. The harness drops down from the spider, which is what they call the apparatus that holds it in the air. And they... Uh, the bit is on the uh, right-hand side of the horse, and it comes across and pops in his mouth, and they clasp the, um, everything together, and they're typically out of the firehouse in less than a minute, although one, one and a half minutes is considered accessible. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're talking a quick turnout. That's amazing. <laughs> and so with the third horse... Uh, the pole that would be like 30 minutes to get my pony harness. I know. (laughs) Like I don't turn out that fast. Uh, so the, with a three abreast, which was what Goliath was in, there's a pole that is also suspended. So they would have the, the two horses would have come in and the, the one on the right hand side would have come in just like a regular, um, pair horse. The one that goes in the middle would have sidestepped over, so I'm guessing that he took a little bit more training. And then as the harness is coming down, the pole drops as well. And then the third horse can drop into position. And that's where Goliath was. He was out there on that side. 
And so um, he was all excited about that morning. He fire horses were really taught to stand still. They had to be able to stand even when things were really rushed and, and excited. And for whatever reason, apparently he was really antsy that day and uh, caused a commotion. And they think that, it, uh, according to the book, um, Goliath by Claudia Fidel and illustrated by Troy Howell, um, they think that perhaps he smelled the smoke from this fire that was burning and thought that he should be leaving because they did learn what their job was very quickly. And they got him down. They headed out. Goliath and his team were transporting the Hale Water Tower, which would have taken about 60 men to pull. It's a five-ton, 65-foot extension that blasted water into skyscraper windows. So it's a big apparatus. I mean, you know, and uh, down the down the road they went, and the second alarms are going off, and and they're beginning to know at this point in time that this is not going to be a good. uh, Well, no, there's never a good fire, but this is going to be a very bad situation. And as they reached the Hearst Building, it exploded. And although he got seared by fire, he stood. And again, that goes back to the training. They're taught when they, they tell him to hoe that they stand. And the deal is, is once they reach the fire, somebody starts unhooking them. Because the first thing they want to do is get those horses out of the way mm-hmm. in someplace safe while they fight the fire. The men fight the fire. Apparently, it was cheaper to hire men than it was to replace horses. And so the horses were the first priorities to get them out of the way. And a lot of times they actually faced them face to face wherever they, they left them uh, so that they could see each other and they were um, comforted by the idea that they were together. But at this point in the story, they began to realize that the building was going to collapse. They have this fire tower that they desperately need to fight this tower fire and but two of the horses have been unattached have been removed from the harness and so there's only goliath left and again i would like to point out that this is a very very heavy apparatus and they asked and he gave and he struggled and he got them out and as the hearse building collapsed and collapsed on a steam engine and a ladder truck he got them to safety just as the bricks ran down. And um, he, he saved the life of some of the firefighters. And ultimately, this apparatus that he was pulling was used to fight the fire. And, um, you know, so he's considered a huge hero of the Baltimore fire. And it took him about six weeks or so to um, get healed. And in that time, I wanted to say, um, oh, actually, I need to back up one thing. It took the men 55 straight hours to fight that fire. Oh, wow. my gosh. So it was it was a bad fire. I'm, and, I'm looking um, at, I mean, whole city blocks were just gone. Oh, it yeah. looks like it well, was bombed out. Well, in a way it was, because to stop it, uh, just like we would sometimes uh, build a, a backfire out in the, out, um, on the prairie or whatever to kind of help. Yeah. Hope that it would stop a fire. They um, blew up some buildings. Oh. Uh, with the idea that it would create a, a, a space in between and, and the fire would be slowed down. However, the wind was not in their favor. And 
the fire continued to spread. And, but, um, for the most part, everybody, you know, the as far as the firefighters go, uh, Goliath was the one, only one of the horses that was hurt. And it took him about six months to, uh, recover from that. And they thought, oh, well, we'll give him a little break, you know, after he recovered. And they were like, well, they brought him home and everybody was so happy. And then they got a fire call and they were like, oh, we won't use Goliath. But Goliath was like, yes, I am going. <laughs> and uh, promptly uh, joined the team and, and went back out even after the uh, six months was over. Which I have to say made fire horses a little hard to retire. Apparently, <laughs> Wendy, you may have heard about this. Apparently, they really like their job, and if you retired them to, let's say, a milk wagon or something like that, when those fire bells went off, they responded. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard about that. Yeah, <laughs> that they they just are so trained, and also the ones that make good fire horses, like Goliath, you're talking about, they're like adrenaline junkies. Yeah, so they want to go. Yes. And we, we've all seen the old videos of, you know, the black and white videos of the three abreast coming out of the firehouse or whatever. And uh, those horses are, are ready to roll. And uh, they come out of it like coming out of a starting gates, yeah. um, just as an example. But um, so anyways, when we were at, it was a really good story. And, and I liked how it played in. And uh, they just happened to have the book for sale in the gift shop, which, you know, imagine that. Um <laughs> But the uh, Fire Museum of Maryland has some of those vehicles, and they also have an 1888 steam pump engine that would have been the, like the one that got crushed in, when the Hearst building uh, fell down. In addition to that, they do have a complete spider s system, which is what suspends the, they actually have two, which suspends the harness in the air. And uh, they were kind enough to do a demo video for me and I'll post that over on the auditor page if you're an auditor so that you can see how that, like, I don't know how horses were trained for this because it goes whoosh, right back up into the, to the ceiling and it's on a spring system. And of course it hits the ceiling and you can see once you know what you're looking at in the old pictures of the firehouses, you will see where the uh, spider apparatus has hit the ceiling and left dents. Um, so oh my God. those horses stood well, stood very well. And I'm looking I at just, a picture of Goliath and he looks like a big gray Percheron. He was, he yeah. was a Percheron. Yeah. yeah. And I did double check because I was kind of like, well, how do they take care of these horses and, and that type of thing? It took about three to six weeks to train them. Um, That's it? Yes. Uh, they, they learned the different bells pretty quickly. Well, they had to and, learn two things, stand still and run like hell. And stop at the end. Right, right. Yes, because the stopping was important. <laughs> uh, and, and which was kind of amazing because if you start looking at the bits that they used, there are no harsh bits. Um, the horses that would need a harsh bit to contain them are not the type of horses that would make good fire horses. <laughs> so almost all of the ones that are in a display, which they try to be as true as they can, are like a snaffle. And so when they got to where they were going, they had to stop and uh, and be good about it. So can you imagine uh, fighting a fire with the with the old pumps they had and the no. the line? It was like peeing on a fire, you know. So it's, it had to be like <laughs> it oh. really was. Yeah. Um, once they got the steam engines, it got a, the stream got a little heavier. <laughs> um, I will say that. 
But um, did they have hydrants the other, back then? Um, not in '88, but no. they came along. Um, after, and I, I, I think knew they you were going to ask me that question, and I San took a picture Francisco of it too. Uh, is when they decided that hydrants might be a good idea. Right. Yeah. Right. And the Chicago um, fire too. I mean, there's you know. Right. You had Baltimore, Chicago, um, San Francisco, and a series of little ones. I mean, Pittsburgh had their fire. You know, every every city had fires that eliminated businesses. In the carriage industry, uh, the magazine would actually list um, carriage makers, carriage um, people that had something to do with carriage making, and the fires for that month. And it would be like a whole page. So that was a pretty common thing to have happen. Um, But the other thing that I, I do want to point out, which is kind of an amazing thing, we don't think about it today, but manure was really important back then because there was no f- artificial fertilizer. So you had to have manure to be able to increase the, the soil. And the fire department actually got credit for their manure that they uh, created. <laughs> and that really? was a source of income. Uh, and yeah, when the f- oats and hay were delivered, then they would get the credit for the manure. Like how is amazing? Yeah, and actually, we talk about the cars. We, um, if if they hadn't have come up with artificial fertilizers, horses would have lasted a lot longer than uh, because cars weren't that efficient at that point in time, and you could make enough money just from selling the fertilizer, the manure as fertilizer, to be able to pay to have a horse in the city. <laughs> I don't believe that. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, there's and now there's we been pay a couple to have of it them. Taken away. I know. I wish <laughs> yeah. someone would pay me for my manure. I know. Great. Now we all are like, how do I get rid of this? And how? What is my manure management plan? Yeah. And back then it was, hey, I need it for the fertilizer in my garden. So I didn't think about that though either. In the city, I mean, what do you do, what do you do with that? I mean, you'd have to. It must cost a lot nowadays for them to get rid of all their manure. They must pay like waste management to dump it. They do. They have to have a special waste management if you're, um, you know, just for an example, one, the carriage services that are in New York City, yeah. they have to have special um, bins to take it away. And it goes, it doesn't go with your regular trash, of course. But um, they, back then, you would put, put it in essentially like a burlap bag and they would haul it away. And um, it was, it was sold by, I think, the ton. It's been a while since I read that book, but... Uh, it was it was a going concern at that point in time. People needed it. Oh. Well, I'm, just, <laughs> but, uh, I'm just reading a picture of an article that was, it was 24 blocks that were burned. Yeah. So yeah. that's a good. That's a uh, lot of people in that of, time. Yes, it is. Yeah, definitely. Huh. Well, but, this has been um, fascinating. Wow. Who yeah. knew? Goliath. Who, who knew? When... <laughs> but you I, know what? I, I love, love these stories. I love like this Goliath story and like uh, Sergeant Reckless. Yes. It's like one of the things that I really love about the Horse Radio Network when I listen to other people's interviews is like you can tell like how much people love their horses and everybody has their special one or the did like that just gave them everything. And back then there were, you know, when they had to use horses for every day they had so many like really incredible horses that, that everybody knew about. It wasn't just like, 
you know, your friends telling you about their sport horse. You know, these were horses that like save people's lives. Oh yeah. And, and these horses, I, going back a little bit to our last episode when we were talking about Santa sleigh and how much it would weigh, you know, at this point in time, Goliath moved 10,000 pounds on his own. I mean, he put it down and, and said, I'm going to move it, you know what I mean? And, you know, I'm sure he had an adrenaline rush, but still yeah. to be able to say that is, is an amazing thing. I did want to talk just really briefly about the collars. If you get a chance to go to a fire museum, check out the collars. They don't look anything like the collars that we use now. What do they um, look like? There, there's different designs, but the ones that they have at the um, Fire Museum of Maryland are these metal collars and they're they're very shiny in there they're stainless steel and they're hollow so that they're light and i asked if they had um pads on them for the horses at that time and they actually had um vet studies and everything that felt that they were more comfortable this way because of what they were doing but i was like well what if they had collars on would they burn and that Mm -hmm. wasn't a concern for them um, but they each uh, fire company had a vet and a farrier assigned to them. And this is one of the things that the vets came up with was that the way that these fit the shoulders of uh, these Pertrons, and in particular, this Pertron, um, the Pertron breed, really worked for them. And it met their needs without having any padding on it. Wow. Um, which today we're all like, hey, I need a, I need a fuzzy, you know. Right. So. That's what having, but maybe also they had more chance of like catching on fire if embers hit them. Well, that's what I asked about. And and he said it wasn't really a concern. It was more about how, a how fast they could get in them. And, and that the, because you're asking for such a rush, um, apparently they're more likely to get gals if they have the pads. So I, hmm. I, I don't know. I, I'm now I'm kind of like, well, I have to go study that and find a. I'm sure that there's somewhere there's a vet study. So I have what happened to Goliath. I yeah, found an article that was done in uh, I don't know 1904 or somewhere. It better be a good ending. No. I'm telling well, you. Well, he died. Right but surprise. Of course, uh, <laughs> we all die. Yeah. Goliath. Hope not Hero- a black beauty way. It has to be happy. Goliath Hero of the Fire 1904, pet of the fire department and pride of the work horses parade, has answered his last alarm and will no more be seen on the street wearing a collar of flowers. Apparently, they treated him like quite a hero. Goliath fell sick suddenly last Wednesday night in his stall at number 15 Engine House on West Lombard Street and died yesterday morning in the department hospital for horses at number 10 Hook and Ladder House. Yes. Department hospital for horses. Yeah, he, he was. He's buried in um, Towson, Maryland. Well, here's the, you're gonna love this paragraph. Goliath will not be sent to the glue factory. His carcass <laughs> will be buried uh, this morning in a grave under the trees of Stonelay on York Road, owned by Mrs. William Van Knapp, unless oh. otherwise ordered uh, by the fire board. Oh. A previous order by the fire board has been rescinded, and that one was, get this, after the death of Goliath, his skin be stuffed and placed in a Maryland building. <laughs> Apparently, they overrode that, and he got buried. Oh, yeah. <laughs> didn't stuff him. Either way, that was a huge honor back there. That, yeah, that was yeah. as, as good as it got on the side of the horses, and we happened to be talking about that the other day. You know, now we trim a tail, you know, and right. keep a braid of everything, but back then keeping a horse's hoof as a cigar tray or something like that was a high honor. 
And so to bury him intact was it was a very high honor. And I, as I understand it, at one point in time, he led a parade for that had 1,400 um, firefighters behind him. Huh. Aww. He was he was the parade marshal. Yay, Goliath! Yes. <laughs> and I have to laugh too because he's white. You would have yeah. thought that he would have got really dirty there, but apparently they groomed him every day, and and uh, he he was taken very good care of. And I I think he was also a stallion. Really? Uh, I I read that in one place, and then I couldn't verify it any place else. But they t- they didn't use mares, so he would have been either a gelding yeah. or a stallion. And um, I am under the impression that he was a stallion. That's great. Fascinating. Well, Kathleen, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. Where can people find out more about the Carriage Association? We are on Facebook at Carriage Association of America, and we are online at caaonline.com. Our terrific sponsor, the American Driving Society, always has some exciting things going on. This month, they're working on the current ADS directories for affiliated clubs and affiliated trainers. So if you're a club or trainer, it's time to get your info to Heidi Ferguson and make sure it's up to date. You can also check out the ADS website for the Omnibus for all the upcoming driving events. Plus, they have educational information. And one of the great things I really like on the ADS site is the Recreational Trail Guide. And that lets you search for carriage-friendly trails near you. Because, um, like Glenn, you found this great little place to take your carriage, but uh, you kind of stumbled across it. Right here, the ADS has um, put together a whole list of different public recreational areas, and drivers like you have given feedback to say what the trails are like and if they're navigable by carriage. So it's a great uh, resource. So go to AmericanDrivingSociety.org to learn more. Next up is the interview that I did here in Florida with uh, with a, a fun couple who you competed with. I heard all those stories, by the way, from Heather oh, yes. and David. They're my besties. <laughs> so Heather and David Schneider uh, on the back of a wagon pulled by a couple of Clydesdales. Hey, Wendy, I'm sorry you're not here today because I'm with one, two of your good friends. We're with Heather Schneider and David, and we are in a carriage pulled by a couple of Clydesdales in beautiful Florida where it's absolutely sunny, and I'm apologizing to all you people who just had a blizzard. Uh, but Heather, I think the last time we had you on, you were just finished competing and won a gold medal. Yes, I actually um, finished up in 2015 competing my pony four in hand um, at Live Oak, I think the last time after yeah. we talked after the Pony National Championships. Yeah, that's right. And now you're running a very successful carriage business and out of, just outside of Stewart, Florida, here on the kind of the uh, lower middle coast of Florida. Yeah, we're about uh, 30 minutes north of Palm Beach. Yep. We just drove up, actually, from Loxahatchee in Wellington area to do this. And, Wendy, I am with my other co-host, Jemmy. Hi. <laughs> and Jemmy's getting her first experience on a uh, carriage pulled by uh, Clydesdales. So tell everybody about the Clydesdales. Who do you got here? So we have Bonnie on the near side. Please tell me the other one's name's Clyde. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Bonnie the Clyde is on the left-hand <laughs> side. Is on go. our That's left good. or on our near side. And I have Rosie, um, our young Clydesdale, on the right-hand side, or on the off side. And were they trained when you got them? 
Um, no, Bonnie was actually a stay-at-home mom when we got her. Um, she's had five, four or five foals. Wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, Rosie was just a youngster. Rosie was just coming two years old when we uh, bought her. And so did, you retired from competing. Were you just done traveling? What was the story? You just wanted to change scenery a bit? Yeah, well, you know, watching six white ponies every single... Uh, <laughs> you know, come on, let's just talk about yeah, that. But after we get that through that part... Um, you know, I had reached my my driving goals um, for myself. I knew that Europe was probably not a possibility at that point. Um, and so, and then a, an injury shortly thereafter kind of confirmed it. I had a really bad break in my wrist. Oh. Um, and I've already had broken my right hand at the gulch. Wrists. Yeah, you knew yeah. I broke my right hand in the gulch. Oh, that's right. Um, back on a carriage, back sometime. And that healed, and I was able to come back and drive. But then when I broke my left wrist, um, a pretty severe break, that I knew kind of that was the end of driving a f- team of four. Did you ever think you wanted to do an actual full-fledged carriage business? Um, funny enough, when I was in college, I drove horse-drawn carriages for a commercial company in Hudson, Ohio. Um, and I was kind of money for to get through college. Um, I didn't think I'd end up back at it, though. I really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is a customer service job, a serious customer service serious job. Serious customer service You're doing weddings when everybody's all freaked out to begin with. Yeah. Uh, weddings, funerals, private parties, special events. Um, it's, we've which been really... is worse, the wedding or the funerals? Um, well, <laughs> funerals, the, the guy in the back doesn't usually comment too much on the back. <laughs> That's so true. He's not yeah. complaining. <laughs> There's a little, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you live in a beautiful equestrian neighborhood. What's the name of it here? Um, actually, we live in Sunshine Farms or Martin Commons. Um, it's five acre minimum ranchettes and, um, it's not gated, but it's a nice, um, oh, community. Oh. So. And you have the right of way so people can ride on the side of the road. And you have carriage driving forever here. <laughs> yes, yeah. that we do. We've been really fortunate. That's how I was able to keep those ponies fit when I was competing, too, is we had a lot of area, a lot of space to drive. Why'd you settle on this area? Um, actually, my great-grandfather and, um, and great-grandmother were part of the land boom here in Stewart. I actually took my first there steps. There was a land boom in Stewart? There really was. <laughs> What um, year was that? Uh, <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> um, in the well, was, Stuart was actually um, incorporated in 1940. 14, 14, sorry, 1914. 1914. Yeah. And um, so, but my great-grandparents my great settled here. And if you know anything about Ohio winters, they're miserable. And yeah. so my parents... I lived in Pennsylvania. I had the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. so my parents used to come here um, for every vacation we possibly had. So I actually took my first steps in Stuart, Florida in the sand. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it wasn't until after I graduated from college that I moved here full-time. So. And uh, you like living here, obviously. I mean, most of us wouldn't live anywhere else now. So Yeah, I do. Um, the summers are a little bit brutal, but yeah. the rest of the year you can't beat. So, And the carriage business now, it's really taken off. Did you expect it to be this? I didn't. Um, I didn't. Well, I guess what I didn't know is I didn't know all the facets of being a carriage business. It's more than just we think of weddings are the mm. first thing we always think about. Um, we don't think about parades. Um, well, I didn't anyway. I didn't think about the Indian weddings, which um, are keep a good part of our business. Barats, yeah. And I didn't realize that there was a, a fairly strong market down in the southeast um, for funeral services as well. So. That's becoming big all across the world, actually. Yes, Hors- it is. Horse-drawn funerals now have really become big. 
So, so are you enjoying this? Is it fun? I am. You know, part of our goal was to find a retirement program for my ponies. Um, and I didn't really, like I said, we didn't expect to get into Clydesdales and draft horses too. Um, so it's working out well. The ponies have a nice retirement program and, um, and we're enjoying sharing them. You know, when you, when you compete at a combined driving event, um, you're only sharing those horses and ponies with that small audience. Um, and when we can take them out in the public, um, you know, we're really sharing them with a lot more people. I can't tell you, it's it's almost every single weekend that you have people that have never touched a horse or been around them at all. And that's that's a really cool part of it. Yeah, it has to be. And you do public rides, too. Let me ask you a little bit about that, because this is the driving radio show. And we've had the conversation. And as you know, in the past, we've been huge supporters of the New York carriage horses and the battle they've been going through. Have you seen any of that down here? Um, what's interesting, um, we do carriage tours in downtown Stewart, Florida. Um, it's a quaint little town right on the coast. Um, and we went down and at the very beginning, we had a few people that were a little skeptical about what's going on, but they saw the care that our horses receive and the condition Your horses that are in. not skinny. They do not no. look malnourished. That no. is for sure. Um, we take a lot of pride in, I think our traditional carriage driving background also, um, provides, you know, we have, our carriages are kept in show quality condition for the most part. Um, and you your know, horses and your and, harness. And yeah. the horses and the harness and the equipment. Yeah. We keep everything kind of what, to our competition standards. Um, so I think that they've now, and you know, every so often we'll get somebody that comes in from another part of the United States and kind of gives that oh poor horsey, and um, usually the uh, locals take care of that right away and explain to them that these <laughs> horses are yelled. beautifully taken care of. And yeah, so so for our carriage driving audience, what wagon are we on? Who made it? We are actually on a carriage machine shop wagonette. Um, this carriage is our six passenger wagonette. We have three of them. We have a s- smaller version, which is a four passenger, which actually has the Surrey with the fringe top. It's pretty uh, popular for birthday parties and weddings. With the fringe on top. Yeah, and then we have a larger wagonette that holds up to 10. So, And you have a Cinderella, too. We do. We have a Cinderella coach. Um, we have a Visa V, which is the real um, face-to-face yeah. carriage, so very traditional. The standard uh, kind of the carriage standard. ride coach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then we also have um, a beautiful Royal Landau that we found um, in, a, in the panhandle of Florida, sitting in a garage covered in dust. And we brought it back, and we've been using that for special events, too. That's a pretty carriage. Well, I have to get David into this conversation, because because actually, a long, a long time ago, you're the one that caused all this, and usually it's the other way around, you know. And she's actually the horse husband, like me, and you're the one that started the horse thing. Yes, uh, I actually kind of got Heather started into um, more of the pleasure driving, uh, and that's when we first met about eh, at least a good thirty years ago. She was at that particular. Okay, point, wait a minute. How long have you been married? Uh, Heather and I have been married now 20 years. Oh, Wonderful 20 years. <laughs> 20 oak trees to go. 20 yeah. oak trees to go. Tell everybody about the oak trees. That's a funny story. Uh, Heather knows about the oak trees. I don't really know the story about the oak trees. <laughs> he, but he remembered the number of years. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's because tell about the oak trees. 40, you're bailing. I know what that is. Yeah. So, as I said, so we've been married for 20 years. Uh, we actually met 10 years prior to that when we were both living up in the Ohio area. Uh, and she was actually starting, it was working uh, for a commercial carriage uh, operation. And she had come across the uh, town of Cleveland, Ohio. And I met her as she was bringing uh, a 
one of the carriages that she uses there down a hill and it was rainy and I was coming down the road and I thought to myself, boy, that doesn't always look like the safest condition. However, she did quite well. And she I didn't crash. Stood there. The horses didn't wipe she out. She did very, very well. And I was extremely <laughs> impressed by it. That was and it. You so went chasing after her down the road. I eventually <laughs> sought her out. Um, so that was kind of how you can we drive first like met. that. I'm going to marry you. Yeah. <laughs> also, at that particular point in time, there's a couple of different things. I was a uh, president of our local driving club. And so, uh, in that, I was doing some uh, work for the junior drivers, and she called me up one day, and she asked me a whole bunch of questions about the junior junior driver program that I was doing, and she says, well, why can't the adults do this program? I said, well, certainly we can do that for you. Uh, so that's kind of how that all got started, uh, meeting Heather, and uh, like I said, we kind of dated for about 10 years. I got her really interested into uh, the pleasure driving shows, and that's where she made mention earlier about going to Walnut Hill. Do you miss showing, Dave? At uh, this particular point in time, no. No? Yeah. Uh, I also, when I was younger, I used to ride hunters, and uh, I've retired from that as well, too, and don't miss it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe that. I'm with you on that one. Well, this has been fun. We're actually pulling in. I don't know. We're going to the farmer's market. I don't don't know why, but we're going to the farmer's market. And you guys, it's been so much fun. Where can people find your website? Um, It's Wind Chase Farm. It's www.windchase.farm. It's so good to talk to you both again. And we're going to have to have you back sooner on the show. Sounds great. (laughs) Well, okay. We're in February. And I know the winter is long and you feel like you can't make it, but spring is right around the corner. And so Kitty Cadwell joins us today to talk about how to beat your winter training blues. Welcome, Kitty. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Glenn. Well, we're lucky because we live in the South, but I remember living up North and, oh my God, this was right about the time where I thought I'm never going to make it. I've got sads. When's the sun going to come out? My horses are so shaggy and they haven't done anything, but uh, you have to get them working because spring's right around the corner. Right. And we're in North Carolina, so we get kind of lucky. But still right now you're thinking, oh, we only have about six more weeks of winter. We can survive this. (laughs) Yes. It gets very tiresome for the long hair and the shaggy coats. And yes, wintertime doldrums are setting in. Yes. Cold buckets. That is the worst. Yeah. Oh. Chipping ice. We're lucky we don't have to do that. Yeah. But But, it's um, time to get ready for our spring season now. We have to start getting ready. Showtime's coming up really fast. Yeah. So, like, I mean, you guys in North Carolina can train year-round, but you still have to make some adjustments to your training schedule for winter, right? Sure. We're super lucky that we have a very active driving club. So there's something going on every month which allows us to get our horses out and keep active without freezing or overdoing it. But yeah, we all have to start thinking about it's time to get them clipped and start getting them back in harness and start getting fit again. Cause uh, you know, live Oak will be here before we know it. Yeah. So like, I, th- I think that's a, like a, a valid goal for a lot of people. Like maybe they're, first show of the spring is going to be maybe if you're going to do live Oak, it's March in North Carolina, you have your show 
you have what you have Southern Pines and Tryon right in a row in April. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, really, you only have like two months to get ready for those CDEs. And even if you're going preliminary level, you still have to be able to go, you know, your horse still has to be at a certain level of fitness. So what should people start doing at this time? Yeah. So I think that we need to start first off, make sure the feet are done and in good condition, check the teeth, do your spring shots and whatever, Wendy, you need to do with acupuncture, start your season. Mm -hmm. Well, make sure they're physically in good shape. And then it's time to start clipping, trimming, and getting your horses back in harness because we don't want to have them sore because of the breastplate or the girth because you haven't had them in harness enough time before their first show. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in some northern areas, you can't take the carriage out. And if you don't have a sleigh, they're going back to pulling the harness and maybe they've just been ridden all winter. Well, then you can you can do a lot with log lining in the winter. Some people have access to an indoor, some don't. But you can long line them, and but they still do, like you said, need to get back into pulling the weight of the carriage. So mm-hmm. we need to start getting them fit again. We need to take them on walks, trots, and start increasing the trot time and getting them ready for us to start working them. And also, I think a lot of horses change their body over time. You know, if you give them... It's really great to give them some time off. You know, I remember when I lived in Massachusetts between like Thanksgiving to to like the end of January, the horses didn't do much because it was just too horrible and cold. So they start to atrophy a little bit and then their collar might not fit. You know, you might need to adjust some things. And then as they bulk up again, then, uh, you know, their, their harness is going to fit a little differently. So that's great advice to say, you know, to, to get prepared so that you don't just throw them in the carriage and go. Yes. Cause we don't want them to be fit and sore. They're working hard for us. So then, then we start to work a little bit again on their fitness. And I feel like once you get a horse to a certain fitness level, they do hold it well, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they've been pulling the carriage or trotting for half an hour straight during the winter time. So we need to bring them back from a little bit of a vacation, right? So they need to come back and start getting their fitness level up and their, their, you know, ability to pull the carriage and then start working into all our dressage work. So how can we don't always have to do dressage? We can (laughs) see our club, like I said, is super active. And uh, a couple of weeks ago we had a derby. And we did it out at the Carolina Horse Park in an arena with footing. So it was two hazards and 10 cones. And it was just a blast. And it was really good to get all our young horses out mm-hmm. and um, into groups. Because you've got people in the warm-up area. They have to stand around and wait. So it was just really good schooling with it being fun. And it's two rounds that are maybe, you know, three minutes. So it's not like it stressed them. But it was good to get out and like a little bit of a pipe opener. So these are the derby courses, kind of like uh, what we see when we watch those videos of them at the indoor, the foreign hands at the indoors, right? So the cones are there and they usually have a, a hazard on either end. Yes, that's exactly it. We, we have the same portable hazard and we set up two hazards in the arena. Of course, we don't go up to F like the big boys. We only go up to D. <laughs> But, um, you know, it's really fun and it's fun for the driver and fun for the horses. And Mm -hmm. it's in an arena, so it makes it nice and safe. And uh, 
we had like, uh, I think we had 31 entries. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, that's really good for a, a, a January thing. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think too, uh, when I started driving back in the day, when I lived in North Carolina, I would come down to the Southern Pines and my pony, um, you know, I only, I only drove at home and I would sometimes go down to the other trainer's house. Right. But he didn't see a lot of other horses driving. And he only saw combined driving when I was at a combined driving event. So sometimes the noise level of some of the hazards and people yelling can get them nervous. So this derby is, like you said, it's, that's great schooling opportunity for them. Yeah, it's perfect. And to have to deal with the warm-up area and trailering in and harnessing up at the trailer. Mm -hmm. It's just like it's a good way to get you very started on your season while having fun. Because we were all yelling and screaming for everybody and having fun and it was loud and there was an announcer. So it did school the horses very well. Yeah. It exposed them to things because like we said, we have live oak coming up quickly. You know, also the the Derby, I just thought of this now when you said about live oak out of many of our shows, we don't have that many spectators or the hazards are, are very spread out or in the woods. Um, but at Live Oak, it's like a European show where the hazards are right there and you'll have thousands of people around the hazards. And sometimes horses that aren't used to big crowds can really get backed off from that. Yes. It makes it a very electric atmosphere and you either are backed off by it or you thrive on it. Yeah. So you want to teach your horses that that's fun and that the, all the people around, they, they fade into the distance and the horse just focuses on what they're supposed to do, that they don't get rattled by the noise and by the changes and by people cheering for them. Yeah. And I think too, when I used to ride, it was a lot easier when you're on them to realize that they're getting nervous. And when you're driving, you can't, sometimes you can't tell that they're getting nervous until it's a little bit it's a a little bit longer than when you're sitting on them. And then since you're not on them, you're not really touching them. You can't comfort them as much. So you're right. When you're driving, you do need to take more opportunities to, to desensitize them. Oh, I feel like our driving horses get much more exposure to everything than the average riding horse, because people Mm -hmm. will tell us, really, you do that with your horse. (laughs) I want them to do it because what if we run into that at a show or, you know, they have to see flags and not worry about it. It's just, it's our job to make everything that it's just an everyday occurrence and no problem for them. You know, uh, I, when I was little, I just have to tell you this really quick story. When I was little, I was showing hunter ponies at the Topsfield fair in Massachusetts. And one year they just have little pigtails. Yes. Did you have little pigtails and and little bows on the end of your pigtail, Wendy? Because I can see that. Of course. But they put the 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 pleasure driving ring right next to the pony hunter ring. And let me tell you, I mean, so many of us got bucked off because these ponies had never seen carriages before. (laughs) And they were all little like white ponies, but you know I have a hilarious story to tell you about this because I I have only really worked and been around the saddle seat horses mm-hmm. when I was at Devon and you right. see the most hyped up. And so I did a show in California 
at Del Mar. Yeah. And it was, they had driving classes, but it was a lot of saddle seat horses. And I have to tell you, we went in and worked our horses in the ring during open times. We drove all over those showgrounds, and those horses never flinched at us. And I, <laughs> I saw like five-year-old kids out riding these giant saddle horses, right? And they never minded the four in hand. And they look so never wild, minded it. Those saddle horses, don't they? I know, but but they're but they're used to out there. Yeah. You know, there aren't that many driving shows, so they take advantage of every show they can go to. So these yeah. horses see it, and it becomes no big deal. Right. You know, right. more it's the rider or the driver making things a big deal. Yeah. You know, the horse says, oh, should I panic? And then you start to panic, and they're like, well, mom's panicking. I better <laughs> panic. <laughs> so I was just amazed at how, you know, I'm so used to people saying, oh, keep the driving horses away. Keep the driving horses away. Yeah. Oh, you're scaring my horse. And when people don't fuss about it, it's nothing. We were in an indoor arena with a tent and giant blow up animals because it was Christmas time. Oh and my God. Working with little kids on saddle horses with the four in hand. And oh nobody God. fussed and nobody complained. That's great. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so you wouldn't have gotten bucked off. No. well so katie after we get through our winter people start going out and about again we have our first big show of the season is live oak are you getting excited for live oak we always are we're on a countdown already to live oak live oak is like not only the beginning of our season but it's one of our best tour shows we look forward to every single year um and live oak International, of course, is in Ocala, right around the corner from Glenn's house. And it's at uh, Live Oak Plantation, which is the home of Chester Weber. And um, now we used to be just driving, but now we have uh, show jumping as well, right? Yeah, it's become quite a big show. And uh, this year, it's it's a lot of national championships for the driving, too. You have the four in hand championships, the single horse championships. So it's a national championship for the driving as well as these open jumpers and big name open jumpers there. Yeah. And it's, it's such a like fair kind of atmosphere there. It's so fun. And like I said, the course is kind of uh, I know we don't have many Hills in Florida, but there is a Hill at live Oak and the hazards are kind of set up on this gentle slope. And you can see all of the hazards from this midfield. And it's really fun to go around. Plus you can tailgate at certain hazards, the water hazard always has a big crowd, as does the gulch, which is a really fun hazard. Um, Kitty, tell us a little bit about the gulch hazard. What do you think of that? So the gulch, Chester has built this amazing bridge. What do you think it is, Wendy? 25 feet down? It's oh, yeah, deep. It's, it's a deep gulch. So yeah. they made it so we can drive over the top or go under the bridge. And it is a lot of steep hills, which are hard for the horses to pull. But if you ask them to go up and down it and stay out of their mouths, it's not that hard for them to do. It's like a couple strides. So people look at, they stand at the bottom and they go, oh my God, I don't know how you can get a carriage up there. But if you think of a horse's stride, it's only a couple strides. It's just, it's more psychological in the hazard. Yeah, I think that. You have to not be scared of the hill, of the ups and the downs. You just have to drive it. And then yeah. your horse says, okay, then I'll go. But it's right. caused some problem over the years. It's, 
more, as I said, the mentally for the driver than for the horses. Yeah. But it's, it's so dramatic when you watch people in the hazards there too. That's so exciting. Yes. Yes. And the nice thing is, like you said, it's all in a line. So you could essentially follow one driver and see them in every single hazard. Just Mm -hmm. walk around and up the line of hazards, which makes it really nice because you can follow somebody. And I think say, okay, I want to see this driver. Right. Yeah. And you can chase them all around. You can actually make it because it's about five minutes between hazards, I would say. Yes. And this year, the uh, marathon day is March 7th. And after marathon, so marathon's in the morning. And after marathon, they have some show jumping classes up in the big uh, grass arena. So that'll be fun. Plus, they have tons yep, of shopping. Grand Prix. Right, it's a Grand Prix. Oh, that, so, yes, you there's know, a this Grand Prix so in the afternoon and lots of stuff, lots and lots of shopping. Yeah, I mean, this is only in Ocala that you have this kind of, uh, you know, a big show like this with, when you have show jumping and you have the driving all at once, it's, it's more like a, like a European fair atmosphere. Definitely more like a European show. That's what I said. The electric atmosphere, the mm-hmm. people, like you said, we get more spectators. Uh, yeah. you can get funnel cakes and lemonade. <laughs> oh yeah. And, all the good stuff. The, and usually the Clydesdales are there. The Budweiser Clydesdales. I heard they're coming back this year. Oh, good. I love seeing them. Yes. So that'll be fun. So we'll recap. uh, So we'll uh, talk more about Live Oak, too, next month. But, uh, Katie, thanks so much for giving us all that advice. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next month. You're welcome. And everyone get your horses clipped and get ready because it's time to drive again. On the TCVM update, we talked about wellness and living in harmony, right? And that's like the basis of TCVM theory. So this month, I want to just recap on some of the TCVM basics um, to explain a little bit about how your vet makes a diagnosis and how to understand the recommendations. Because I know sometimes there's a lot of like jargon involved, right? <laughs> that doesn't always make sense. So one of the basis basics of TCVM theory or any kind of uh, Chinese thought is on the yin and the yang, right? So we all have heard about that and you know that symbol where it's the swirly white and the swirly black. So yin and yang is like, well, this is a quiz, Glenn. Do you know what the yin and yang means? You explained this years ago. And did you did, but I mean you forgot, like 10 forgot. years ago. So I've long forgotten. But Okay, so like we talk, we, we want to be in balance, right? So if you're going to have something in balance, you need two sides, right? So the yin is the dark side and the yang is the white side. So it's opposites. So yin is cold and yang is hot and yin is female and yang is male. So we have these two opposites and it kind of breaks things down into the simplest kind of forms. So uh, it's kind of a, a series of 
questions you ask yourself, like a decision tree. Like when I'm working on a case, I have a decision tree, right? And I'm kind of classifying things. Are they yin or are they yang? When you see that little swirly yin and yang pattern, that's what that means. It's in balance. And then there's a little dot of yin in the yang, and there's a little dot of yang in the yin. You need that. You can't have just all cold because you'll be freezing. You'll be the Arctic. And you can't have all hot because you'll be the desert. So you want a nice balance of both. Also, in Chinese medicine, we talk about, like, Glenn, you're a perfect example. We're talking about excess and deficiency, right? Is it an acute problem or is it a chronic problem? And then interior and exterior, right? So right now you have an exterior problem. Like you just have a cold, right? Yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope you don't get pneumonia. Or that right? Chinese that's thing. Be, I know. <laughs> that's pneumonia, the coronavirus. Is that what but it that's is? The I don't even know really what it was. Yeah, it's a coronavirus, which is so it's an aerosolized virus that gives you like a upper respiratory infection, but then it can go inside deeper uh, and that's more serious. I don't want that. So depending, yeah. So depending on where, how we classify the disease, this is just like in, in regular medicine, conventional medicine, we test, we, we try to assess the severity of your disease and treat it appropriately. Then also in Chinese medicine, we talk about the five elements because Yin and yang, if it was just that, that'd be too easy, right? You have to throw in something else. So the five elements are uh, fire, earth, metal, water, and wood. And those elements are, were, are a way to explain the natural world, right? So you may have heard these elements in uh, feng shui, Right. So feng shui is a way of like living your life, designing your house to live with the environment. We also use it in Chinese medicine because each element is associated with different parts of the body. So the fire element is involved with like your mental status and your heart. So if you have um, like anxiety, that's part of the fire element and I'm going to treat things to regulate that. Whereas earth is more involved with your, uh, GI tract and your muscles. And so horses with ulcers usually have an earth issue and we're going to treat that. And then also we've talked about this many times before. Each of those elements has a personality type and you can use those to diagnose your behavior. So uh, another thing you might see your veterinarian do when they, when you have a TCVM exam is that we do a, it's called a, um, we palpate the meridians, an acupuncture scan. And what we do is we palpate the body and different points on the body give us a pattern to help us diagnose a disease. Like uh, if a horse has stomach ulcers, there are certain points that will show up on my scan that tells me that that horse has stomach ulcers. Or front feet. There's a lot of points that tell me 
that, oh, I think this horse has a front foot issue, along with my conventional medicine diagnosis of, you know, a full lameness exam. And the, the scan is very interesting because uh, the meridians, which we talk about all the time, the meridians are like channels that run through the body, mapped channels. The meridians tend to follow myofascial patterns. So your myofascia is like that covering outside your muscle that goes into your tendons and ligaments and holds all your body together. So when your body's out of balance, you can have myofascial pain. And though the pattern of that pain can tell us where the root of the problem is. So like Glenn, when your Lyme disease is flashing up and your body hurts all over, that can be a lot of myofascial pain. Well, you can have, or like if you over, over exercise, then you can have some pain in your muscles like that. Sometimes these are also called trigger points. And we use all of this information together with our, um, you know, conventional diagnoses to put together a pattern that we're going to treat. So say I have laminitis. Okay. So I know that this horse has front foot pain and we call that stagnation, cheese stagnation. Um, but we also try to figure out the root of the problem. Maybe it's that this horse has, uh, Cushing's disease, right? And that's more related to like a, a liver heat disease. Or maybe the horse got into the feed room, right? That's a cute problem. And that has to do with an excess. So TCVM can be very helpful to help classify our pattern and we can treat the pattern and we can use that as a standalone treatment or we can use it in uh, integrative therapy for different, uh, for different problems. So our goal is to take all that info and to develop a plan to bring the body back into balance. So even though it seems like as you're going through TCVM, it gets more and more confusing because there's more and more things to think about. The same thing happens with conventional medicine and science. So we have to take a look at the whole body and then we can get into smaller and smaller things like all the way down to the cell or the DNA. But we try to keep all of these levels in balance and TCVM can help you sometimes see the forest through the trees. Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. Wendy. Of course, you can find all of Wendy's information at drwendying.com. Well, that's it for today. We'll have another episode for you tomorrow. As you know, we're not live this week. Uh, we'll start to be live again next Monday. Jamie will be back, and we'll be back kind of on a regular schedule for February. And that, that'll be nice. We, January was so yeah. messed up with sicknesses and everything else going on, cruises and things. But next week, we'll be back with a regular schedule. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Wendy. Thank you. Remember, keep the shiny side up.